Get ready, golf lovers. The boys are teed up and ready to go. Backspin, thanks to Inside Golf. Welcome to another episode of Backspin, brought to you by the team at Inside Golf Magazine, Australia's most read golfing publication. My name is Larry Canning. Right next to me here is one of the country's most respected golf coaches and respected mates. It's Gary Barter. Hello, guys. Hi, mate. How are you? Good. Good show today, mate. A great interview is coming oh, yeah. up. We're talking to sporting royalty, James Erskine. Not many higher profile sports and entertainment agents than James, Gaz. We know James very well, but especially in golf. He's massive in golf. He's massive in everything. He's all, he's all over. The- no, I'm always I'm always asking him. I said he should write a book. Oh, he's definitely got to write a book. Be one of those books that you mm. you wouldn't be able to write. It'll be about ten percent of what he would like to write. Yeah, he's got so many great stories. Great stories. He's got a connection with the royal family too. It's amazing. Great relationship with Michael Parkinson, Mary Parkinson. They've been. Obviously, I would, would come to Australia to watch the test matches, at, you know, just before and after Christmas. He's obviously Shane Warne, amazing relationship with Shane. Yeah, 12 months since he died. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge loss. So he's he's a Tiger Woods, a Greg Norman, a Nick Faldo, Tony Jacklin, Arnold Palmer. James has had amazing relationships with all of them. Yeah, so it'd be, be fun. We're also talking to a good mate of yours, Aussie Aaron Price, former PGA Tour player and one of the biggest characters on the PGA Tour. He's a funny bloke. Oh, he's, he's an he's awesome, a yeah. No, he's an awesome guy. He's a, he's really, really well respected. Obviously, not just with the players that he, he played inside the ropes and he played the PGA Tour, but just outside the ropes. No one says a bad thing about yeah, Pricey. Yeah. He's done some caddying, Gary, and he, and he caddied for Chris Kirk. Was it the week before, two weeks before, yeah, he, he, he won after an eight-year hiatus? Yeah, he caddied, he caddied for Kirk at Phoenix in the Waste Management, mm. and obviously Kirk won at the Honda. Yep. Just recently. So Aaron wasn't there, unfortunately, for Aaron. Well, yeah. no, no cut there. Yeah. No, no caddy cut. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting relationship. Anyway, we'll talk We'll talk to Aaron. He's, he's in America. What part of America does he live in? He lives in Jacksonville. So okay. next week I'll see him at the Players. He'll be there. It's going to be some ungodly time of the night over there, isn't it, poor guy? Yeah, it'll be uh, It'll be 11 p.m. Oh, that's all right. 11 p.m.'s all right. No. No, no good. Uh, a bit late. <laughs> I stumbled upon my review this week, Gary. It wasn't supposed to be a, an equipment review uh, as per se. I was just picking up a golf club that a bloke had bought a set of clubs in for me to sell into the pro shop at Mount Broughton. This beautiful set of Bridgestones. And um, I have seen them before. I, I, he got them fitted by Con, our club fitting technician at Mount Broughton. They're about my specs. And I picked one up and it had this unusual grip. It had, it was like a almost a parallel grip. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Uh, I, I think our producer might have just farted. Oh, did we hear it? Yeah, I heard it. How many listeners do you reckon are going to now turn off because of the Andy? What are you thinking? And it's a studio, mate. There's a golden rule when you're in a radio studio. You do not. Yeah, it's too late, mate, for that. Should have whacked that in before you. Glenn Twenty, Gary. Anyway, where was I? The intro. <laughs> yeah. we were, no, I, was grips, ta- no grips, I was talking grips. about the yeah. Anyway, this grip is it's, it's Golf Pride Multi Compound Plus Four. It's called. That means that under where your right hand goes on the grip, it's four papers thicker than a normal grip. And then I thought, well, I love this idea, this concept, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. Yeah, as I said the grip's not tape, it's not tapered. It's down. not. It's barely tapered at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm, whenever I get a set of clubs, I always ask for two papers under the right hand mm. to get that feel that the right hand is a little more secure. 
but obviously they've incorporated that in the, in yeah. the rubber. The reason I'm going to be talking about that is because when I was talking to our club technician, I said, look, they were a bit thick. The whole of the grip was a bit thick. I love the idea of the right hand being thicker, but it was like a mid-size. So mm. I wanted the regular size with a thicker right hand grip. I said, well, can I take these off and just whack a, these other grips on? And he said, well, you know what? There's, they're like 10 or 20 grams lighter the grips I'd be putting on. So that there makes the, the swing fix, weight, the yeah, slip. like six notches, mm. and you wouldn't be able to hit them. And I thought, who would know that? How many people just get just take their clubs to the shop or a shop and just say, just put new grips on? Yeah, I think it's probably the most undervalued, underrated yep. component of the buying a set of clubs, the grip. Definitely agree. It was a really insightful week I had with these clubs, and um, and I'm glad Andy was so excited about that review. You know, halfway through, yeah, mm. it was great. Jay Monaghan. Jay Monaghan has just announced some changes to the 2024 PJ Tour, the rules regarding these designated events, which are now going to be next year. They're going to be short, smaller fields, 70 to 80 players mm. and no cuts. Sound familiar? It's amazing. I think that's been tried, hasn't it? Yeah, I think that... Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the pot calling. The isn't it? Like wow. Isn't it just that? And I can't believe this guy's still got this job. I mean, I'm sure he's a lovely man and very professional. And, but some of the decisions that are coming through him, um, maybe this is yeah, the Players' I, I, Council that, that come out with this. I'm not sure. I found it interesting even this year, you've got those elevated events. So you'll get Riviera, Bay Hill, Waste Management, and uh, obviously the advertising on the, just watching it on the TV, the advertising is Justin Thomas's back, Jordan's back. It's a really heavily weighted that all the better players are. And then you've got the, the normal PJ mm, Tour events. Mm. There's definitely a shift in the fact that when you're watching the PJ Tour now, I could imagine just your normal punter at home thinking, oh, is this one of those good events? Yeah. Oh, no, this is, an, this is an ordinary event now. I'm not going to watch the it. channel, get the remote. I'm not sure whether that's the model that they want. Even this week, you've got Bay Hill and you've got Puerto Rico. And, you, you know, you could turn that on if you if you weren't really up to speed with golf. You turn it on, you think, oh, is this a Corn Ferry event? Mm. Oh, no, this is a off-field event. You wonder how diluted that product will get. Because mm. mm. I was thinking about sponsors moving forward. If if I was a, a marquee sponsor moving forward and you're not getting one of those elevated events and you're not getting guaranteed that sort of quality field, yep. then you wonder what the backlash will be with the, the money. And then you look mm. at Honda, who was always... Famous for that tour event that Chris won last mm-hmm. week, mm-hmm. the Honda Classic, and now they're, they're not, Honda aren't involved anymore. So you wonder what, what's going to happen in that climate moving forward. Mm. It's, 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 you, because you, when I first heard it, I thought, would it not be better, or have they considered spreading the better players out across all events? So you've always got some keynote players. Yeah, I'm sure they'll try and, and get a couple of these guys to be playing in those those sort of non-elevated events. So it's just normal. But at the moment, it's almost like that's what their sort of gold pass is, that, mm. that, those particular events mm. are, are, are seen as the... So you've got your majors, then you've got these elevated events. It'll be interesting to see. Because this year, 223, there's like 16 or 17 events they have to play in, the PGA Tour players. And if they're in the top the 20 on the on the FedEx Cup or 30 from last year, have to play. I think that's the rules. Okay. Have to play these, these elevated events. There aren't as many next year, and they, you don't have to play in them. Okay. It's all an experiment, isn't it? It well, lives in experimenting, the PGA Tour well, experimenting. It's, it's, defi- it's definitely forced the PGA Tour's hand to change their product. Mm. Uh, Interesting that the, the change they make, the, the two things they've talked about a lot about the live golf is and their criticism of the live golf has been no cut yeah we'll talk to pricey what he thinks about yeah what's going to yep, happen interesting yep and james for that matter thanks guys we'll be back right after this the backspin interview thanks to inside golf aaron price hello mate how are you welcome to backspin 
Good to be on. Obviously, I uh, saw the other day that Gaz had data this. I couldn't think of two better guys than yourself and Gary talking about the golf world. God, you're living in America too long, Aaron. You're starting to sound like one American, mate. But we're struggling pricing. <laughs> yeah. So, mate, moved over here when I was uh, 19 and a half. I'm now 40, so crossed over that line, which is pretty sad, but this is what happens, I guess. So, mate, like many young kids here that want to turn pro, eventually get to the PGA Tour, you've actually done it, which is incredible, really. Um, I remember when you and Matt came out to the Australian when you were like 15 years of age and that journey from that point to then fulfilling those dreams of actually competing, playing on the PGA Tour and going through the, obviously, the college system. You had a stellar college record. Were you All-American number one team? Yeah, so I played three and a half years, which means four. And the final year, yeah, I was number one. I ranked first team All-American, ranked like fifth or sixth world amateur and all that stuff. But when I first came in, so yeah, at 15, my goal was to be an assistant pro at Carilla. By the time I finished college, I thought I would play on the PGA Tour for 10, 20 years, and I only played three years. So the age of 15, I really, achieved way more than I thought I would but from the age of 23 when I turned pro I wouldn't say severely but I definitely underachieved so you know perspective and stuff is pretty interesting you know you won on the nationwide tour I remember yeah, 2008. Um, Corn Ferry, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was Webb, and, and obviously on that tour, that, that was an, another stepping stone. And then getting on the main tour, and obviously yeah. playing in that environment, playing with those players. And there was definitely in that period like a shift in regard to the game, in the fact of the game starting to become a power game right at that time. Yeah, I think the post-Tiger Woods thing, you know, came on the scene 96, 97, the kids who, you know, were 10 years old at that age were now, you know, 2009, 2010, were 22, 23. So they were coming on the scene, I guess, more your world than my world, but they were taught to, you know, hit it hard at 12 and 13, hit as hard as you can, and then we'll work it out, whereas we were taught of smooth. And, and obviously uh, the advancements of TrackMan and all these other stuff has made the swing and these kids much more efficient much earlier, I think. So it is a different game, but uh, that's that's good for the game, I think. Yeah, I remember um, you'd always come back for a barbecue. You know, you'd finish the season, you'd come back, we'd have a barbecue at your house. And, and obviously you were at that point doing very well, but you, I remember you said that your one goal in your life was to have an eight-foot putt to win a major. You, whether you made it or not, yeah. you just wanted that chance. Or Even a tour event at that stage, like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But I just wanted to know what the feeling was like. Because, you know, obviously I've been lucky enough and so are you to know all these players and they can tell you what their experience, but nothing like you can't put yourself in their shoes. So I just always, as a fantasy or whatever, wanted to have a putt. I've had putts to beat you in putting comps. I've had a putts to win corn ferry events or, or whatever, Australian Opens and all that stuff. Not to win it, but I just thought that would be cool to know what that feeling feels like. I never got there, but yeah, I got close at a few top tens, but, but nah, it's probably gone now. Might have to revamp for the senior tour in 10 years or something. It wasn't that long ago, Aaron, that you were in contention, like big time in the Australian Open, wasn't it, at the Australian? A couple, yeah. Two years in a row, I finished top 10 and sort of, yeah, I wouldn't say I was in the final group or anything, but... Had a few good years and a couple of good Australian Masters and that, and but not quite good enough. I could go back and do things a little bit differently. Attitude, as Gary will tell you, could have been, uh, certainly wasn't in the top 10 of the Australian Open in Attitude that week, so <laughs> that would have helped. What parts of Attitude would you have changed, mate? Oh, just living and breathing on every shot. Like just You watch day-to-day, you're not even the top 10, you look at like, the top 50, a lot of them, now, whether they're taught that or it's just sink or swim, they're playing the long game. They're not sweating on nine holes one week. You know, they're 
figuring they're going to earn, you know, the old cliche of 80% of the money and 20% of the weeks and the weeks where it's not working, they're mm-hmm. sort of saving energy and going through the motions. And, I, you know, now my life is sort of crazy. I haven't played golf for four years. But I do caddy a little bit for Chris Kirk and he's probably one of the best in the world at it. Just extremely patient. Obviously, he's a competitor and things get under his skin, but, but it's not out there acting like, you know, the world's going to end because he three-putted from 20 feet. He's just understands that he's secure in his ability and knows he'll have some birdies coming up and yeah so i remember pricey you you caddied for matt it'll be five or six years ago maybe at the, oh, play, yeah. at the players and I remember you said to me you said that your attitude when you were caddying you you felt that if you had that sort of thought provoking patient demeanor for you yeah. when you're playing you you thought that would be more valuable so when you're looking from the outside in is that something that you've noticed with these guys that are at the highest level they seem to have that ability to still compete as you said but not interrupt their um they don't hit the panic button too early yeah and and, and i think i'm an emotional person when, when when so i've always joked like if i'm arguing with someone i'm very emotional but if i'm arguing for someone you know i'm very cool and i, I think very rationally and all that stuff so i guess it just would come down to uh, dna or learned or, or, or nature versus nurture but too emotional you got to try and you are who you are, but you don't need to overreact. Overreacting is a is a part of a, of emotion. So yeah, I would try and you know take a chill pill and just play the long game. You know, seventy two holes or, or you know six week stretch if you're playing. Just try and relax. You're always going to compete. Telling yourself I'm going to compete hard, like you, you don't have to do that as an elite golfer. You're going to do that. It's, it's subconscious or it's second nature. So yeah, maybe be a bit secure about my game and. And just be patient. Just getting back to Chris Kirk there, Aaron. Um, he's uh, he made it pretty public. He's had troubles off the golf course, depression, alcoholism. He's trying to help people in the same position. When you're talking about attitude, if he's come through that, he's only recently won, as we all know, mm. um, after I think it was like seven or eight years. Oh, I know all about that win. I caddied the week before or two weeks before. Oh, did you? Okay. Before, yeah, yeah. So was he looking good then? Oh, yeah. So he missed a cut of Phoenix, but just he actually got frustrated for the first time I've caddied for him. Just to be honest, like amazingly you know ironically i'm talking about like he hit a shot in the water on 12 on his second round and you have 13 15 17 all holes you can hit in you know in under regulation and changed club the last second hit a good shot went in the water and for anything for some reason it seemed to get under his skin more than usual and i i almost was going to say to him hey what's going on here you're acting like me like like i used to act which is not what you want, and I didn't say it, but he ended up birding the next hole 13, but still, anyway, didn't birdie any of the ones coming in, missed the cut by one, and ironically pulled out of LA the next week, hey. which he was going to play, was not going to play Honda, switched schedules wow. because he's like, oh, I'm gonna, not going to hang around for five days, it's cold, I can go back home, Honda is warm, but Bermuda Green's different different type of grass. Yeah, like he's he had two thirds before that, so... Every week I don't caddy, he plays really well. I, I'm not sure if there's a, a connect there, but <laughs> seems I, like I, I don't. I don't want there to be. Guess you don't either. No, mate. No, 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 but it's, 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 it's out there. The, the public, no, are, the public are listening, mate. Caddy they'll be, let them be the judge. <laughs> I only caddy like four or five times a year just to get out of the house. I'm, I, I do real estate stuff here, and I do a little bit of the commentary every now and then on uh, ESPN Plus. But we're friends, and he, he's a very rare guy that has multiple caddies. So the year he finished second in the FedEx Cup 2013, I think he said he had seven caddies. Wow. So last year he would have had probably five. Myself, his main guy, Chromie, another guy, Mookie. He just has friends come out for two weeks at a time. Like, 
they're all like we're all decent players. The guy that's been caddy for him when he's been playing well, uh, played at University of Georgia, not with him, but you know, obviously a very good player. So he just likes to have fresh people in the bag. I think some of the regular guys that are off bags, he'll grab them. So yeah, that's that's how the way he likes to do it. How many other players would do that? I've never heard of that. Probably he's the only one. Now, yeah, some have okay. two caddies. Some some have uh, guys doing a job share. Like Adam Scott's doing a job share this year. Uh, Louis Eustace does a job share, but yeah, he's the only guy that just ma- maybe one, maybe two, maybe that I can't think off the top of my head, but it's very rare, obviously. So, Pricey, obviously now you're on the other side of the ropes. I'm trying to talk you back into playing all the time, but at the moment, you're on the other side of the ropes doing some real estate, doing some media, doing some caddying. When you're out there watching players now, and I've spoken to Radar about this, uh, Wayne Riley, when you're now yeah. looking at them, in the modern game, what what are you noticing? Are they are they are they better putters of the ball now? We know they hit the ball further. Is there something that you sort of observe that you think, gee, this has really stepped up in certain areas, or is it just normal progression of golf and better players? Well, I just I think they're like, like is the word less scared, especially the younger guys. Like you know, it was like when I was like, if a twenty three year old came out and had like three you know top tens in the in the first six events it's like who is this kid now they're like you know Colin Morikawa and Matt Wolf and that were winning so I think they're just less scared and that and it's just a little bit exponential so everyone lifts their game and obviously guys are hitting it further they're more efficient like track mans they're more dialed you saw Dustin Johnson get really really dialed with wedges I think that's just standing on a track man and getting the feels so I think technology and you know once someone raised the bar the guys seem to come up so that's why I think I don't think it's yeah the, the crazy other than natural progression with technology and and people just lifting to that. What do you think about the modern ball? Like, what's your what's your take on that? Is that something they've got to look at? I would be on the I guess the Mike Clayton is the guy in Australia who's publicly on one side. I, I side probably on that. I think they need to roll some of the stuff back because it's a lot easier to roll one one piece of equipment back with a ball than it is to change every golf course. And, you know, you see some of the places they're hit, hitting on St Andrews, but then you look at some of the scores and the median scores, they're not that much different. So, I don't know, I'm a little bit of a fence sitter, but I do think that the ball and some of these driver heads that have got out of control, I, I don't know what point, I don't subscribe too much to it, but that would be my opinion that it should probably roll back a bit. So you have definitely hung the clubs up, Aaron. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of jumping across questions yeah. here. No, no, all good. I still play socially. I played last week. I finally played good. I, I shot 66 at Ponavedra Inn. And, well, I could still shoot 66, but the next day I'll shoot you know, 74, and it's it's no pressure golf, maybe 20, mm. 20, 20 or something like that. So it's it's very different when the gun goes off. That day I shot 66. If I was playing the Houston Open or something, I'm probably shooting 76. Yeah, okay. It's yeah, I remember very different feels. I remember yeah. when I was working with Pricey and we'd uh, we'd be grinding. And sometimes Aaron would fly back from the states just to come back to the Australian for a week, and then he'd fly back. And obviously we'd pounding a lot of balls, and and we'd make a, a breakthrough. And I remember Pricey'd always say to me, he'd say, "Look, this is this is good, but I'll find out how good it is." Mm under the gun yep. yeah he was always pretty mindful of the fact that yeah look yeah it's nice I'm hitting it good uh, but let's see how it goes when I play what would be the pathway back Aaron if there was one if you chose one you know like obviously just play mini tours and then go to Q school the Q school is going to change now so there would be there is going to actually be cards again for the PGA Tour I don't think many but maybe five obviously you know, there's going to be college kids get PGA Tour cards too old. Though I do think I've got like six months of eligibility left. Oh, okay, um, okay. But no, no, I don't. 
No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we just 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 be the way that that, that anyone do it. Would be honest. Like go to Q school, get a corn ferry card, uh, play your way on, do Monday qualifiers. But no, it's it, the game has gotten too far. I'm, I wouldn't even say I'm a young forty. Like I, my body's, you know. Like these forty-year-olds that are playing on tour are getting worked on every day. They've all got trainers. They've all got that stuff. I certainly don't do that stuff. So, yeah, okay. still obviously love the game. That's my identity. It's you know I've been obsessed with the game since I was you know eleven or twelve years old. What do you think is going to happen with the live tour? My opinion is they've got to get world ranking points. It's obviously a great quality field. What do you reckon moving forward? What do you think is going to happen there? My take is I'm not sure why everyone cares so much. The tour's doing their thing, Liv's doing their thing, but everyone, I guess, especially in America, it's just, you've got to be on one side. It's like tribal. But they're just going to do their thing and, and see how it goes. It's Obviously, at some stage, there needs that franchise model needs to be sold to, to sponsors. But I don't know. The product's different. It's, it's a different product. It's laid back. It's got music. Uh, obviously, I've seen you at a few, and caddied at one it's different and the consumer will be the one that decides if they like it or not and if it overtakes or or you know underwhelms like i I don't know but it's definitely it's definitely had a positive uh vibe here in oz like in adelaide yeah apparently they've sold out every day i would think australia south africa and south america Mm, yeah would the, the consumers in those parts of the world would probably be watching more live now i would think i don't know but that's where you know, obviously the PGA Tour is, is, is centrally and heavily based in the USA. So I think it's good. I think competition's great. I don't understand some of the pettiness on, on either side. Just do your thing and free market capitalism, I guess, will take care of it. If, if people want to watch it and enjoy it, there'll be sponsors and there'll be fruit for everyone. Did you say you caddied in, in a live event, Aaron? I caddied uh, for Matt, actually, in oh, Saudi okay. Arabia. Lance had a crazy rare eye infection. Like, his retina was detached, so... Gary caddied uh, in Thailand, and I think the next week, oh, it was Saudi, so I flew over, and, and Lance was uh, out of action for a couple of weeks. Okay, interesting. So it, there's a huge difference from, from the caddy standpoint. We're hearing how well you looked after it at a live event. Were you there early enough to experience that? Yeah, it was good. Obviously, the travel was good. We all stayed at the same hotel. I, I joke, but it, but, it, but it is true, and I think it's part of the allure. It felt like a junior tournament. You know, everyone's teeing off the same time. Everyone wants a <laughs> breakfast. We all stay at the same hotel. And the element of fun is insane. Like, these guys are having breakfast, joking. They're having such a good time. And, but, you know, when again, when the gun goes off, you're playing for your teammates. And I even mm. felt like Matt was like a, a different set of nervousness. I've right, played a lot right. of golf with Matt. I caddy for him. And, you know, when you're one over and your score's counting, it's a completely different set of nerves. And I just hope the consumer can wrap their head around yeah. that because it's a compelling story, to be honest. Like a guy who's battling his game, one guy's already gone, he's five over. The other two guys are playing well. Like this, Essentially, the team is counting on this guy. It's, it's very interesting. The team aspect of it is being enhanced. The second, it's, it's still an experiment, Aaron, isn't it? I mean, this is only, what, what's nine, ten events so far? Yeah. Not, not each, so, it, you know, it's, they're still learning how to how to promote the team side of it. But that the first event at Maricoba this year, I thought there was a, definitely, from watching on TV, there was definitely more a team aspect to that. Yeah, but the crazy part is, if, if you sort of add it all up, so the PGA Tour guys or whatever, not, not either side, but... But look how much fun and stuff they have at the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup. It's a team thing, and they're not even getting paid. Mm. So if you look for the money debate, so that's why it makes sense. That, like, not, not every week, but the, maybe the tour should have been having more events. Like Zurich last year had five of the top ten in the world play that two-man yeah, event. Yeah. So I think these guys are earning so much money that I think there is an element of, hey, I'll, I'll take less money to play and have fun. 
or, you know, for the live guys, a lot of them getting paid more. But I think maybe the tour or anyone in world golf underestimates how much fun these guys have playing mm. team golf. We'll be seeing it in April this year down at Adelaide. Aaron, thanks, yeah, mate. I'm sorry to awesome. get you out of bed for the chat. Not a problem. Head back there and, and dream of both of us um, as you're not off, okay? Thank, thanks, Pricey. <laughs> thanks, All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks to Inside Golf. This is Backspin. Like I mentioned, guys, my review is Golf Pride MCC Plus 4 Grips. And I've explained in the intro what exactly how they work. They are four papers thicker. We use papers as the thickness for those golfers that... I think everyone listens to the podcast will understand what papers under a grip means. It's a, it's a way of thickening not only the grip, but parts of it. So these grips, the rubber is actually four papers thicker, so you just slide them straight on, and they're already thickened where you want them. I did mention in the intro also that the one I picked up in the pro shop, it was a mid-size version of this same one. So it was a little bit too thick, more under the left hand than anything for me. I said to Con, our club fitting guy, look, can I change these and get put the regular size plus four grips on? He said, I can do that, but I built that set of clubs and that will affect the swing weight significantly. I weighted the head on what the weight of the grip is. I had to counterweight mm. the head. So you make the, because they're 20 grams heavier up the grip end. Yeah, you've got the swing weight. You've got weight, to make the, the head 20 grams heavier to maintain your D2, D3 swing weight. And he said, if I put a normal grip on that, it'll be D8. And, you know, at my age, steel shafts, I wouldn't be able to hit it from here to Andy. I'd, I'd have a crack at hitting Andy after what he did in that last <laughs> <the> intro. <laughs> <laughs> He's only here to help the world play better golf. So settle back and enjoy this tasty tip from Larry Canning on Backspin, thanks to Inside Golf. So it was interesting. I, I think um, basically my tip is if uh, I try these grips, they are Golf Pride MCC Plus 4, and when you do, make sure you're getting fitted properly by the Golf Pro and make sure you're, he's looking at the, the current swing weight of the clubs and will it affect them and how it will before you just say, I love those grips, whack them on. Yeah, look, I, I think it, it, it makes sense. As I said before, I've always... I've always put a couple of papers under my right hand. I like that that feeling of being more secure, not as not as tapered down from the left to the right. And I think that most of us, when we go and buy a set of golf clubs, we just grab the golf mm, clubs. Yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of consideration for that. We all have different size hands: small hands, medium, large, extra large hands. Mm. The the late great Kerry Packer, when I taught him golf, we'd be he'd be eight papers. Wow, was he eight, really? Eight, eight papers, and that's when the grips didn't have the option of mid size. And then you've got the other theory. You look at a Bryson DeChambeau who uses really thick mm. grips that would yeah. be equivalent to like 10 papers. And that theory is that it takes out a lot of hand action through mm. the ball. Mm. So the thinner the grip, the smaller the grip, the more you can, I suppose, the hands could override. And I think that when you, obviously, you've got, you know, you've got, got to get advice when, you, when you're purchasing your clubs and you've got that option to get a grip that suits and feels good for your hand so a standard grip would be for someone with a medium sized hand and you've got the one sided double sided tape or sometimes they might use glue now mm. to to secure the grip on the shaft but i but i would i would definitely say that just from my observation it's a pretty undervalued underrated mm. part of the mm. golf club as you said affecting the swing weight and now there's there's grips that have different textures. Yeah, yeah. Very soft, spongy feeling grips. Other grips that have cord in them. So it's a it's a personal thing. A lot of the pros will have either just straight rubber or a, like a velvet mm. cord. Well, this this grip I'm talking about. A lot of the pros use it. A lot of the tour guys use it. The multi compound, the MCC. Um, I'm trying to track down how many use it with the extra papers under the right hand. That the plus four. 
Uh, it's a work in progress. But um, when I when I did some research, gee, it was like the second most used grip on the PGA Tour is this multi compound one. Well, that's it's, huge. Yeah, it's, it is massive, isn't it? That's, that's, and that's a, for that's a good reason. I mean, you know, they don't get paid to use a grip. No, no. Well, and the other thing that I noticed too, teaching golf is how just your normal amateur golfer will never clean their grips. Yeah, yeah. Like it is incredible. Like, what, what's your tip on how to clean them? I, I've got mine. You go. Well, I, look, I'll no, just, it's wrong. Um, but you've got you. to, you've got to use. Uh, Ajax powder was was what I was shown when I was a young. Okay, why, why is that? Because it I, cuts know, I know and why. It's not too soapy. Doesn't put any fat. On okay, you, yeah, you're close. So it doesn't have lanolin in it. So you're not going to. You're getting a basically. You can just scrub it on, then wipe it off, and it's there's no mm. residue. So that that but the caddies will just have the towel with the water mm. and they'll scrub mm. them. And you asked me a question before today. How often would Matt changed his grips. Like, the, these guys get a new set of grips every week if they wanted to. But he's probably about three months. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. which, which seems like it's only four chains a year. But most amateur golfers, they'll leave their grips on Jeez. for the Jeez. whole tenure of owning their set. <laughs> it could be three years. <laughs> and it isn't that expensive, is it? A new set of grips. I mean, you know, you can... And, it, and honestly, it feels like... Much as a it feels like you've got a brand new set of clubs. Like a yeah. really beautiful grip. Yeah. It's incredible. The other thing too, when you obviously selecting a grip, you've got different grip preferences. How you some are interlock, some are overlap, some have a strong mm. left hand grip, strong right hand. Like there's so many different things you can look into. But I would say that having your hands secure on the grip and having that feel of just a integrated feel from grip shaft club head is pretty important. Mm. Guys, we'll be back right after this. Well, he has handled Muhammad Ali, Greg Norman, Tiger Woods, Michael Parkinson, Harry Kuehl, the list goes on, and of course his good friend Shane Warne. His firm, SEL, was the major shareholder in V8 Supercars, advises the Australian Rugby Union, and was licensing agent at one of the Cricket World Cups. Of course, I'm talking about our guest for today, James Erskine. Good morning, James. Hi, Larry. How are you, mate? Very well, thank you. Now, James, I'm told there's a really interesting story on how you started in this industry. Can you share it with us? Well, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I was... uh a uh, member at Royal Birkdale and my father was chairman of the championship committee and so they had the Open there in 1976. So uh, I went there one day and my job was actually getting there. In the course, it was so hot in, in 76 that my father asked me to leave medical school and come to the Open because I did know the course like the back of my hand. And uh, early in the morning, like 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning on the Tuesday of the Open Championship, I wandered into the men's lounge to grab myself a coffee and there and behold was an American who uh, helped himself with two cups of coffee and bugged off. So I said, hang on a second, it's an Aussie box here. Anyway, that American turned up to be Mark McCormack. Yeah, and he said, my name's Mark McCormack. I didn't know who the hell he was. I had no idea. And uh, I said, my name's James Erskine. He said, uh, are you related to Ian Erskine? And he said, yes, that's my father. He said, well, he gave a dinner for Teddy Jacklin last night. I said, yes, I know, but I didn't get a Guernsey. He said, have you ever met Arnold Palmer? Uh, I said, I've never met Arnold Palmer. But when I was eight years old, when he won the Open here in 1961, I basically followed him around. And I can remember every single shot he played in the last round. And so McCormick said every single shot. So lo and behold, I go look across at the thing. And he says, get your coffee, pay for it, and come over there. And there was on a palm, and he stood up. I'd never forgotten it. And so uh, he basically, there he was. I started telling him, well, you know, he hit a three-wood off the 16th, and he hit into a bush, and then he hit a 
you know, a, a six iron out of that, hit it three feet, and, <laughs> and and all of these sort of things. And he said, "How did you know all that?" I said, "Well, first of all, my father gave me an armband so I could run around, but of course, like a blue ass rabbit." And the second thing is, is that you had a caddy called Alfie, and uh, Alfie basically caddied for my father. He was a southpaw lad. So he told me all these wonderful stories about Arnold Palmer and told me all the shots he'd hit at the at winning that open. So that's how I sort of, you know, started. And then, then I, one thing led to another. I was at, left medical school for six months and, you know, basically being an IMG. Alfie Files, James, that was. Alfie Files, that's yeah. right. Caddy oh, yeah. Hall of Fame he's in. And he caddied for Tom Watson. He went on to caddy for a lot of people, didn't he? Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Lovely. He was a Southport lad. Lovely, so, lovely guy. So, James, what was Arnold's, what was his presence like back then? It was it just... Incredible. Yeah, just, it was. I mean, first of all, well, when you sort of, as a kid and you idolize somebody, you always feel sort of, you know, your day up. But he was such a lovely guy. I mean, he was a guy that was, you know, had the human touch. He would always sign an autograph. You know, I, I never saw him get cantankerous with third parties, you know, I mean, members of the general public. And he just had that, you know, he was the, Ballesteris was probably in the latter years was the person that most emulated him. He had was swashbuckling. He was young. You know, he was he was connected to presidents of the United States. He was he just had that the, the whole package. And um, you know, and like all those guys in those years, you know, Winnie Palmer, Barbara Nicholas, uh, you know, Verity Charles, they all had unbelievable wives. I mean, and I once asked them when we were all playing an exhibition match in in, in a place called Chico in Italy, and I said, "Why are your husband so normal?" And uh, Winnie Palmer said, "Because they win the Open Championship on Sunday, and we make them put the garbage out on Monday." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and they would have had they've all had kids that, too, is, wouldn't is, they? Is so Larry, is that what you do with Sandra? That's the Sandra puts the bin out. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, I thought no, that. It's a, yeah, it's not good. James, twelve months since Shane died, and I know you were not only his manager but a very close friend of his. Looking back, at what do you miss, mate, uh, 12 months on from Shane's loss? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, everybody, the family, I'm still involved with all the family and the children, trust and that jazz. And so we all basically said that yesterday, which was the anniversary, we would have a day of reflection. And I had a very quiet day. And I felt, you know, for me, as you both know me quite well, sort of slightly subdued. But it was a reflection on a great man. It was, a, mm. you know, I mean, he could annoy the hell out of because he never read anything that was more than two paragraphs. And at the end of the day, he hated paying commissions. He hated paying commissions. I said, well, Warnie, if, if you can actually make 20%, if, if, if you can make as much minus my 20% as you can yourself, do it yourself. And of course he couldn't, but... It was quite interesting. He just didn't like paying commissions. But look, I, I think it's taken me, I think it's almost taken his death to, for me to realize how great he was yeah. and the respect that, you know, people have for him. I mean, I know people, when someone dies, you, you know, I wouldn't say glorify it, but, you know, but with Warney, everybody sort of just has these stories about him, but how great he was that he would go and talk to Glenn McGrath and then say to Tubby Taylor, hang on a second, I'm going to open the bowling after lunch. And as Glenn McGrath said to me, he said, we never lost two sessions in a row. Yeah. I mean, he was always, he, his, his confidence about his own ability was quite extraordinary. You know, it's interesting. He was frustrating to deal with, I, I will be honest. Uh, we had lots of arguments. You know, my job is not to be a yes man. My job is to tell, because I manage people's careers. I don't mm. just sort of, I'm not an agent. I'm sort of, I manage people's careers. So my job was to tell him when I thought he was, you know, doing the wrong, not necessarily the wrong thing, but my job was to tell him, look, this is the way we should go. This is mm. Didn't always agree with me. 
and we had a few, you know, um, ups and downs. But at the end of the day, look, he was one of the greatest sportsmen I've ever met in my life. Authentic is the term often used, isn't it? When, when we talk about Shane, yeah, I mean, he, he had this he had this way with people. You know, he could literally talk to the President of the United States, the Queen of England, or a dustman exactly the same way. Mm. And very few people can do that. Exactly. You know, yeah. I can. He always used to go, go out for meetings for a fag. And uh, I can remember he was in my office one day and he wanted down because he wouldn't have a painting fell on his head. And I had my art gallery underneath my gallery. So it looks underneath the office. So it looks in there and he has no idea. And there's a bloke, Tyler, on the roof uh, across the road. And he recognized Warney and he's, you know, chained and strapped to the thing. He's up on the roof. Hey, Warney, Warney, hang on. You've got to sign my hat. Thought, oh, my God. This is going to be 25 minutes. <laughs> well, the bloke had chased himself, come down. Warney just has another cigarette, just waits and waits and waits. And has this chat with this guy and signs his help and then, you know, what's your name? Bert. And he signs, I did Bert. Da, 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 da. And he, he said, you know, I, I hope I've made his day. And yeah. what, what he'd actually done is sort of, it, Bert would have told a thousand people or a hundred people mm-hmm. who told a thousand people who told 10,000, 20,000 people would have known within three or four months. That's the genius of him is, is that he was a man of all people. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, he's a, a, a story about attention to theatre. We're doing a, doing a commercial for McDonald's and we had the whole board there and we, you know, whatever, they all turned up. So they're describing it and it was for McDonald's uh, chicken nuggets. Anyway, so go there and, da, 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 da. and he said, James, can I talk to you? And every, everybody was there. So he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we leave the room. He said, oh, we go outside. He said, I don't like chicken. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I said, I don't like chicken. I said, mate, for a million dollars, you get a lunch. <laughs> and we walked back into the room. I mean, but he never read what he was actually endorsing. I mean, it was so funny. But he, look, he was a marvellous guy. Um, and uh, I think the sad thing about, you know, he, he had so much to give, but people don't realise the amount he did for charity, the amount he did for children. Um, you know, the the, um, the days and days. I mean, he went out for three or four days when the uh, Melbourne fires uh, yep. with Chris Martin, and he played cricket with kids, and Chris Martin sang at night, and, you know, you, people don't realise those sort of things, but, you know, Anyway, yeah, his, co- his, uh, his connection above and beyond cricket was incredible. He, he, yeah. he that great celebration at the SCG, the amount of people that spoke just in regard to playing golf with him. Mm. Like he loved his golf, obviously. Loved it. He was a good golfer, a very good golfer. Had a hole in one at Augusta. Oh, he had a really? Hole in one at Augusta. No. Yeah, yeah. The first time he ever played Augusta at the 16, he had a hole in one. And then he asked me, he said. They've got so much surveillance there, they must have it on camera. I mean, that's what he's <laughs> He wanted the footage. Uh, but he did, you know, uh, he, he tied for the Dunhill Cup. He was just, mm-hmm. you know, he was basically, he loved his golf. And he was so competitive, he would never give you, I mean, I played golf on many occasions, but he wouldn't give you a two-foot putt to save his life, you know, if you thought you could miss it. Um, just knock it in then if it's that easy just knock it in you know he is is really messed he's, a, he's one of the great characters of world sport but not only that he's probably the greatest bowler that's ever lived oh yeah yeah he'd have to be wouldn't he oh it was inc- yeah, incredible like he, he 
that ball, obviously that famous ball with Gatting. But like, when you when you see and that when you see all the like the, there's about twelve of these greatest balls ever, aren't there? Mm. And they're they're not just points of, of a match when the match is gone or it's just it's a draw or something. They all match winning deliveries. Every he, one of those. He, aren't he, just, they? he had that he had that that same trait as Nicholas, where he knew that they knew, yeah, yeah, that he was better. Yeah, <laughs> he had that, didn't he, James? He he just he, he yeah, would, did. I mean, you know, you know that 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 story where he. You know, who was that South African, Cullen? Uh, um, Cullinan, Daryl Cullinan. Daryl, yeah, yeah, well, he, you know, he read and they'd been to a psychiatrist because what he got him out of that. <laughs> yes, yeah. And he asked him the question, you know, what colour was the couch? <laughs> uh, so, you know, but he did, as uh, Gary, as you mentioned, he transcended. He, he had a nickname called Hollywood, you know, when mm. he transcended, he was... You know, he mixed with Hollywood stars. He mixed with presidents and prime ministers, and and he transcended the game. And at a very young age, you know, and he could have he could have been nothing. I mean, you know, he failed. Well, say fail is the wrong word. He was a very good sports, very good tennis player. You know, a very a very very fine tennis player. Oh, okay. very, you know, he played AFL, didn't get selected for St Kilda, and then ended up sort of having beers on the couch and. You know, as the musical about him. I mean, how many sports have a musical about? Yeah, him? there musical it is. Yeah, yep. get off the couch. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then and then you know, um, it suddenly changed. He decided, hang on a second, I can I can be good at this, um, and he was better than good. And he was a bloody good commentator too. Yes, I think the answer with most commentators is that because you've got to actually players have in all sports have become far more powerful. They earn far too, they they earn far more money than they did in the past. Uh, commentators are slightly reticent to actually turn around and say, uh, criticise them. Well, of course, one, he wouldn't give a stuff. I mean, that was, it was mm-hmm. when he had a crack at Stark, saying he wasn't bowling very well. And da, 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 da. Stark took five wickets. And Warney would just say on camera, he said, well, maybe I chipped him up a bit. Maybe he was, maybe I helped. <laughs> of course he did, yeah. He did. Uh, and it's that thing of that belief that you're right. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that, uh, yeah, he was a good commentator. And I think he was a good commentator because a bit like Nick Felder, he tells you what it's like being in the middle, what you are thinking, what you're going to do. You know, I can always remember Felder that, you know, telling someone took a, a sand down or something to chip. Why doesn't he just take an eight on and run it up to eight feet? He's got three to win. That type of thing. Yeah. And, and, of course, Warney would never, he, he was a natural. He would never practice. He could never read a teleprompter. He would never do any research. I can always remember Mark Nicholas sort of saying to me, he says, well, why does Warney leave after he's done his stint on commentary? And uh, most people thought that he was going out to have a fag. Well, that was true. But the answer is, is that he said, look, what am I going to learn? It wasn't an arrogance. It was just, I've got my opinion. This is how I do it. End of story. It was that sort of belief in yourself, which he had. We've all seen it in sport. People have got great beliefs and they can do it. It happens. Should he have been captain, James? I think he probably should because he had a great tactical brain. He should have been captain. Mm. I think that, you know, I, I think that off-course stuff didn't warrant that. You know, he didn't get on particularly well. He, he blamed Steve War, I think, uh, uh, when he was vice-captain when he got dropped. But Warney was that like that. He was black and white. But uh, he, he, would, he should have been captain. He would have been a bloody good captain. He would never have been a liability for the Cricket Australia or, or, or the Australian Cricket Board in those days. Yeah, and I think he would have made it more exciting because he would have taken mm-hmm. more risks. You know, he would have set people targets to win the match and hoping they could bowl them out. So and there'd have been less draws with, with Warney around. Yeah, I can imagine. Moving on, James, you've just finished your tenure on the Australian PGA board. Is it 20 years? Did you tell me that the other day, was it? No, 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 no. I was on for, 
I, I was on for 12 years. So 12, 12 years. Been, yeah, it might have been 13, 12 or 13. Okay. Been, yeah. So you, you must done. have seen some changes and, and, and to the game, not only in Australia but around the world. What, what are the most significant things that happened in those 12 years? Well, I think, you know, prize money, you know, particularly in America and around the world, you know, dramatically um, increased. I think that it's really interesting. I mean, Australia in particular has had a plethora of golfers who, for a country of, you know, whatever we are now, 28 million people, have become world beaters. You know, Greg Norman, you know, without any question in my mind, you know, changed the way people thought about golf in Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be involved with him for 17 years or something. And then, of course, you've got the Live Tour that suddenly was a big thing. Now, you know, you can be highly critical about the Live Tour because, you know, everyone could be, as people were critical about World Series cricket. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're on the board of a PGA, our job, especially in Australia, because the, the, the Tour and the, 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 um, is amalgamated with the every, everyday you know, tour, uh, 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 club professional, the, the fact your job is to look after golf for the professional's point of view. Now, Norman's Live Tour, at the end of the day, all it really did was made rich people richer. But it doesn't matter what tour you're on. I mean, it, you know, if you finish Stone Motherless last and, and make the cut in every single event in America, you still probably make two or two and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. So all of these players are well off anyway. I think what's happened is it's, it's, it's put an electric shock into PGAs around the world. Um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in Adelaide. But, you know, they've sold all the tickets. Now, the tickets were a very, you know, reasonable price, but they've sold, I don't know what it is, 30,000 tickets. That's 60, I think well, I heard. What, how, how many? 60. 60,000. 60, yeah, I don't know. Fantastic. How, yeah, um, you know, I think a season ticket is, is, is... But at the end of the day, it will be the best field. Now, you could argue that some of these guys haven't buddy won for ages. But, you know, when I was running... Um, the Australian Open, well, in conjunction with, obviously, Golf Australia and the Masters, I mean, we'd bring people in like, you know, um, Tom Watson. They would play unbelievable. They'd pass their best. Lang had passed his best, but they were absolutely unbelievable. So you're going to see all these great golfers. So I think if everyone's got their thinking caps on, rather than worry about who shafted who or who did this to who, how can you take this dichotomy at the moment and turn it around and say, you know, let's have a bloody good world tour with all the best players in it? Because the shareholders of golf are not a PGA. The shareholders of golf is the people that watch it and play it. They're the shareholders. And if you start messing them around and they turn around and say, I can't see this, I can't see that, I can't see all the best players playing every week, they're going to get they're going to turn around and say, well, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to watch soccer. I'm going to do yeah, this. Or I'm yeah. going to do that. But funnily enough, the four majors have benefited from it because, you know, they've just turned around and sat there and all, all the best players in the world are well, welcome. But I think that if, if it was my job to work out a solution, I'd turn around and say, how can I bring everybody together and have a truly world tour where, you know, most golfers only want to play 20 to 25 tournaments a year. Mm-hmm. How can we basically have 30 tournaments around the world that are all worth this amount of money? Yeah, you look and in- go to places like New Zealand and Australia and don't be greedy. 
let's have one. We don't need two or three or four. Let's have one. Yeah, and we and we we would have multiple Australian Opens with Nicholas player Faldo. Like back in the day, we we yeah. we'd have those players. They'd want to travel. Like like they would they would go to the big championships around the world. I think Arnold Palmer was famous for saying that you'd go to the British Open and you, unless you finish in the first four, you wouldn't pay for your trip because they they actually wanted to play golf and compete. And the the general golfing public would have the opportunity to see those players. And now we've sort of been starved in the last 15 years, 10 years. We do get the odd better player out here on big appearance money. But we definitely, in Adelaide, you can see that we've definitely been starved of that quality of field, which is shown by the number of tickets sold. Absolutely right. Yes. You know, it's no different when you had a President's Cup here. I mean, look at how well it's sold. Um, And and it's good for golf. I mean, you know, what does everybody want for golf? You know, and and you guys know better than I do. You want little Jimmy or little Lauren, who's five years old, picks up a club and says, I want to play this game. Mm, And you want to give them an opportunity if at the end of the day they're good enough, they can actually go and make a living somewhere in golf. They don't have to be a Greg Norman. They don't have to be a Lord Davis. They might end up being a teaching pro like you, Gary, or Larry, or you might end up basically just having a nice life at Gerringong running in a pro shop. But at the end of the day, you want them to get involved in the game of golf and love the game of golf. Yeah, we were... We're, Sorry. Sorry, John. No, you're fine. And I just think that that is something that, you know, what's going to help that? What's going to help that is seeing all the best players when you're a kid. You think, oh, my Mm, God, I can remember seeing all these players at Birkdale. The Tide Ryder Cup in 69. You know, Tony Jacklin winning at Lytham in 69. I can remember all of these things, Arnold Palmer in 61. And you just turn around and think, oh, my God. You know, I was there, I saw that, whatever, and it, and it, and it, it, it made you want to go and play golf. And actually, as soon as the Open Championship Burger was finished, the first thing I wanted to do was go on the golf course yeah, and play golf, yep. you know, on that, on that golf course. So I, I just think that how can everybody, I think everybody in golf actually wants to help golf. I don't think there's anybody who turns around and wants to be, you know, like the Putin of golf. I think... Everybody has just got different ideas and, you know, sometimes those ideas are strange or not right or people disagree with them. And how can you channel everybody's different opinions? And, and, you know, the best thing would be a world tour with all the best players. I mean, look what the ATP did when when, um, they basically changed the whole thing Mm -hmm. and they set up the Super 9 or Super 9, it was, I think, in those days. And they they worked out with... um, the uh, Grand Slams and they worked out a tour that was run by the players and at the end of the day it's worked unbelievably well. You know, they had a certain number of tournaments that were men and women together. You know, there was a lot of criticism I think of the men and women at the Australian Open together. It didn't seem to work as well as it should do and so everyone's got to turn around and say, well look if it's not working as well as it should do, that means that the general public didn't really like it. I mean, I, I couldn't even follow it on television, to be brutally honest. I mean, it was so complicated. I mean, you, you missed up holes and shots and whatever it might mm. be. So someone needs to work on it. And, you know, there'll be, if you ask 10 people, they'll have different opinions. But, you know, what does the general public want to watch? 
Is it more a case, James, of if we, we want to have an Australian Open and we're selling men and women and disabled players all playing in the same golf courses during the course of the week, and that's being sold to a government? So that's why the Australian Open is still surviving. Is it a case of that? Well, I think, you know, people, everyone has to be so PC in these day, this day and age, you know, to the extent that, and governments and government-based governments put large sums of money into sporting events. And, you know, whoever puts the money in, you know, has the clout. Sporting bodies listen to state governments, and, you know, and federal governments on the basis of money they put into sport as they do with sponsors. I mean, you don't have to be, a, you know, Einstein to work that out. But, you know, what's best for the game of golf? The criteria should be what's best for the game of golf? How do we do this the best way? And, you know, what does the general public want? And then, OK, fine, this is how we're going to fund it. So, James, on another note, obviously, in our intro, we talked about the the people that you've work for, work with, had great relationships with, like incredible names. And one of the really great people that you introduced me to at the Australian Golf Club was Michael Parkinson and Mary Parkinson. And that relationship you've had with him must have been incredible, like such a brilliant man. Yeah, I mean, I met Michael when I first joined IMG in 1976, and quite frankly... Michael Parkinson, you know, we were managing sports people. So, you know, and I wanted him to get me George Best and Jeffrey Boycott as clients. At the end of the day, got them. I mean, uh, you know, um, George Best was a genius, but a lunatic um, and had too many sherbets who would sign anything after he'd had about 15 drinks. <laughs> and Jeffrey Boycott was a lovely guy, but, you know, didn't, was, wouldn't shout if a shark bit him. So he, he wasn't really in the thing for management. So it was, those were the sort of things. And then parking, when I first came to Australia in 78, not living here, but to run a golf tournament for the 150th anniversary of WA with the likes of Curtis Strange, and Peter Jacobs, and Phil Hancock, and all that sort of stuff. So I think Fowler actually turned up there as well. I think that the, um, and there was a guy, a lovely guy called Laurie Kinn, um, Laurie's actually was an extra lorry driver, so it's a bit of a pun. <laughs> he told me to go and see Kerry Packer, and so I got on the plane and saw Kerry Packer. Kerry Packer said to me, "We want Michael Parkins. We want." And I'd sold him in a little office that was sort of like you could probably get three sets of golf clubs in there in London, and I'd sold him for eleven thousand dollars for thirteen shows to the ABC. The guy called Colin McLennan, who was the guy that sort of thought that it would work doing that, and then. What happened was was that I turned up and met Kerry, and he said, I've sorted out a meeting for you tonight at the uh, San Francisco Grill at the Hilton Hotel in Sydney, and it was with uh, Bruce Gindrell, Sam Chisholm, and uh, there was one other that, um, guy, the guy that headed up there, Melbourne. I've had a mental block. Anyway, so I go to the meeting, and as I when I come from the airport, there was a front of the paper was a sort of a, there was an evening paper in those days, the Telegraph, evening Telegraph, and there was a funnel web spider the size of a funnel, almost a human hand size, kills four-year-old boy. And I said to the taxi driver, I said, mate, I said, are these funnel web spiders? He said, oh, where are you staying? I said, I'm going to the Hilton. He said, it doesn't matter. You're on the 17th floor. You basically make sure you put your, your, your shoes on the bed because these things like moist things, they don't, they damp damp towels around or whatever. There's funnel web spiders everywhere. So I go down to this meeting and I'm thinking, oh my God, 
And I said, the first thing I said was, what about these? They just all start laughing. Absolutely start laughing. He said, they're in a naughty, you've obviously been had. But the next thing, uh, Bruce Gindrell says uh, to me, uh, we'll pay Michael Parkinson $200,000. And this taught me the biggest lesson of my life. And I'm thinking to myself, well, 13 times 11 on the ABC, you know, at the end of the day, there's no commercials, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, there's not a lot of difference. So I said, well, he's almost getting out of the ABC. So the next thing he said was, okay, we'll do 26 shows. That's $5.2 million. And I felt a bit like Greg Norman when Larry Mize chipped in. I was biting my lips so hard it almost bled. And my mind's going a million miles an hour trying to work out how the hell am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? I, I, I've got to set up an office up here or whatever. So I, the, the biggest problem I had was that with Parkey, I'd, we'd done a deal where he was only getting 10% rather than 25% commission because he got his um, best and boycott. So I phoned up Michael and I said to Michael, I said, Michael, if I could, and I dumbed it down a bit, if I could make you a million quid a year for coming out here for three years, for three months, would you would you basically pay us a normal 25% and it, phone was sliding for a bit, he says, James, if you can make me a million quid, you can have what you fucking well want. <laughs> <laughs> so I then thought to myself, okay, that's one part of it put to bed. The next part I've got to say, so I presented to McCormick, I said, look, I, I think we should have an office up here. I said, there's so many things, this and that. I didn't mention Parky at all. I said, look, you know, I'd like to do it, but, you know, maybe, you know, but I'd, I'd do it, but I want, you know, 20% of the action. So that was it. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I came out here in 79 and we had a, an auction between se- between 7, 10 and 9. And actually, 10 won it because Rupert Murdoch owned General 10 in those days. And he and I did a, I wrote it down on a yellow pad, a deal. And the deal was done with Murdoch. And I mean, Murdoch was obviously well known, but he wasn't seriously rich in those days. He might be, well, he was rich. He was maybe at 60 or 70 million, but he wasn't a multi-billionaire. <laughs> They just sat there, we did the deal. And next thing that happened was, part of that deal, funnily enough, was a driver for Michael Parkinson. He ended up being John Cott, who's my longest oh, you said, import right. employee, 1981. Good grief. And so that was the start of Parkinson. So to answer your question, Michael Parkinson thinks quite rightly he sort of made James Erskine, and, you know, <laughs> he's been my sort of godfather for <laughs> all these times. Yeah. James, we could talk for hours. It's fascinating listening to your opinions and, and your stories. We have to go. Thank you so much for being part of Backspin. We'd love to have you on again another time if that's okay. That would be lovely, Larry. Thank you, Larry, and thank you, Gary. And Thanks, James. Um, yeah, thanks for your friendship. Take See care. you, mate. Thanks, Bye. mate. Bye. Thanks to Inside Golf, this is Backspin. Guys, we could have talked to James for a day, I reckon. That was fascinating, listening to him. Oh, to, hear, to hear those insights from him, what he's done in golf, in business, in life, the people he's met, worked with, worked for, it's incredible. It is, yeah. Incredible. Just, and he's not dropping names, they're just there. No, and he's, he's, his stories are based on these very famous people and he, with a face-to-face conversation constantly between, you know. And the thing I love about James too, I've spent a lot of time with James and he, he's a great mind. I get a lot of advice off James, he, life, business, but he loves golf. He actually has a great passion for golf. He genuinely loves the game, loves working on his game, played off a two handicap. Yep. I did mention earlier that he owns Mount Broughton Golf Club, didn't I? Well, He owns um, his own golf club. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's when you know you've made it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you've got me as the pro, you've definitely made it. Absolutely. Not. 
guys, thanks, thanks for um, being brutal um, and, and honest and, and just being you. And, uh, and listeners, thank you for listening. We'll see you all again on the next show.